This is the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast on the WVSA Digital Network. From the Sport Pens International Studios in Charleston, West Virginia, here's your host, Marcus Cole. Welcome to the podcast. We have another great show for you. But before we welcome our guests, I want to remind you to like, subscribe, and share our program. This helps us get the word out to others to let them know that we're providing valuable information designed for soccer players, coaches, referees, and parents here on the WVSA Digital Network. With us today is Connor Harris, certified strength and conditioning coach, owner of Pinnacle Performance, and host of a wonderful podcast. Highly recommended. You go out and find that and uh, check out that podcast. Connor, welcome back to the program. Thanks. It's good to be back. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, talk with us. Um, Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about some various housekeeping issues when it comes to strength and conditioning of our youth players uh, in the weight room and um, maybe clear up some myths and and talk about maybe some corrections that maybe we might make on some of these movements. Why don't we go ahead and start with squats? Talk to us about, you know, some of the various issues that maybe we find uh, when we're dealing with these athletes and doing squats? Sure. So I think the number one thing that I see is it's usually a technique consideration. A lot of people treat squats like they're deadlifts almost. Like people will push their hips back rather than their knees forward. And a squat movement, you can think about it just like um, the classic ideas. Think about what we refer to as a third world squat, quote unquote. And that's just someone who can squat very, very deep, unrestricted. Their hips are underneath their back and their butt is at about mid shin or lower than that. And it's usually a very comfortable position. In fact, that's how we went to the bathroom for a very long time before toilets were invented, frankly. So a squat is more of a butt down rather than butt back activity. And the only real way we can do that is by pushing the knees forward over the toes, which a big myth back in the day, and I think still perpetuates today, is this idea that the knees should never go forward over the toes. Well, if you want to run on a soccer field, your knees have to go over your toes. So I, I don't think that um, I get on the surface level why it would make sense for the knees not to go over the toes. But when you do that, you have to push your hips back because something has to give in this situation. So I think when you push your hips back like that, you are going to end up doing more of a hinge or a deadlift activity more than a squat pattern. And then that's going to probably kick out some of the muscles on the front side of your body that would be responsible for um, that squat pattern. So you will not be training them as much. And you might be overly recruiting muscles like your low back, because if you're going to place a bar on your back and then push your hips back, your low back is caught in the middle. So I think it's something that can be done a little bit more efficiently with lots of athletes and strength and conditioning programs I see, but there's nothing wrong with necessarily pushing your hips back in a squat if done properly. But usually I see this, as a means of compensation rather than a true squat being achieved. So a good way to make sure that you're going to get that type of pattern, just do front squats. Do do any type of squat that's going to load the front side of the body because when you do that, you're going to reflexively have to fire your abdominals rather than your low back. And you're going to be so much less likely to overly arch your low back and kick on your low back muscles in, a te- in an attempt to stabilize your entire spine. So I would say knees forward first is always great so long as you can keep your weight in your heels 
and you can keep your whole foot flat and your heel doesn't rise up. So if you can keep your whole foot flat and the knees go forward, I think that's great. If you can't do that, elevate your heels on a ramp or maybe some 10-pound plates, and that should do the trick. That sounds great. That's some great advice there because I know that misconception out there of got to make sure that the knees are, are don't go you know past the toes is out there. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. All right, next subject I want to talk a little bit about, and I don't think it gets talked about enough. Um, you know, we, we, we do movements that are two-legged. Uh, I don't think we do enough single-leg work. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And I think it's – I get it. Like, no one really enjoys single-leg work because it's double the amount of reps. But it's also way more specific to how humans move. And as you're training athletes – Bilateral two-leg lifts are great for very high levels of output, but they're also not teaching the body necessarily. It's not really specific to how we move because generally speaking, when we're doing things and running and cutting and any sort of athletic activity, it's usually taking place on one leg. And usually whatever is happening on one side of the body, the opposite is happening on the other. So, for example, if you are extending one leg, you're probably flexing the other leg. And you can go into different types of rotation, like internal rotation on one side, external rotation on the other. But ultimately, what I'm getting at is when you do a bilateral lift, what you're trying to tell the body to do is I want you to do one thing on both sides of the body at the same exact time. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you only train yourself like that, then that's not going to have a lot of carryover to when you actually need to start moving like a human in locomotion activities. So I think that's a a consideration that often doesn't go, uh, it doesn't go considered that much. And most people say single leg because most of life takes place on one leg. But why does it take place on one leg? It's because the body was meant to naturally alternate between, between these different types of joint actions, not necessarily do the same thing on both sides. And also, if you have any degree of um, muscle imbalance, or you have any degree of one side is more dominant than the other at one point uh, in a joint action and you do a bilateral movement, then you're probably going to have one side do a little bit more work. So you can make sure that doesn't happen by at least balancing it out with some degree of unilateral single leg or single arm activities. Now, is that somewhere where we can get into some issues? Because I was going to ask you about the, the if one side of your body is a little bit more dominant than the other. Is that where we can get into some problems with the body overcompensating for that issue? Yeah, most definitely. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's say, for example, I had a really bad ankle sprain on my right leg. Let's say, I don't know, four months ago. And I was cleared by a doctor. Everything's great. I did rehab and I, I was apparently good to go. But I haven't educated my body to truly trust that leg. And even if you think you're really 100% ready to go, is your leg, do you think you can load that leg just as much as the other leg and have full confidence in your ability to handle that? A lot of people would probably say no, even four months out from an ankle sprain. So I think it's important to consider that if you were to load that bilaterally on two legs, then what would happen if you put a bar on your back and now you're asking your body to have equal output on both legs? That probably won't go the way that you hope. So I would say make sure you're doing that single leg work to trust and have that conscious and both unconscious trust of your ability to load and get into that hip. Can you actually shift into that hip? 
you might have the strength, but can you actually get your body to shift correctly into that side, which is such a massively overlooked factor of rehab, in my opinion. But ultimately, you can accomplish that and you can check so many boxes by just doing more unilateral work. And that, that would take care of, in my opinion, so many issues that we see today uh, with reoccurring injuries, rehab, and also just performance. Now, if you go on social media and look at uh, some of these uh, uh, sites that are talking about, you know, strength and conditioning, you see a lot of band work being done. Is there such thing as too much band work? Yeah, I think if you don't have any other equipment, bands are probably better than nothing. But most people look at bands as if they're really great for, I don't know, developing strength. Or we don't want to make these people too muscular, so we're going to give them bands. Or we don't want to overload them too much, so we're going to give them bands. But in order for the human body to get better at something, in order for it to improve itself, there has to be a threat. We have to tell the body. When we're strength training, we're telling the body this is a threat, this is a problem. And we're going to break down your body through this load. And in order for us to have more muscle, you need to give us a reason to adapt to the stimulus you're putting on us, putting on ourselves. So if we're using a band, you can use a thicker resistance band, sure, but it gets to a point where it's really unrealistic. And that that point actually occurs much earlier than most people uh, actually recognize. So bands are great for people that are completely untrained, have a very low level of fitness. And really, ultimately, it's not beyond that. You're not going to get stronger. You're not going to put more muscle on. It's just not going to happen because there's not enough progressive overload. There's not enough continual improvements and incremental increases in resistance and it gets to a point with those bands where you're going to start compromising form because the band has very variable levels of resistance at different points in a movement like a squat think about how in the bottom it's going to be harder if you have a band around your shoulders and you're going down into a squat and then you're coming up out of it the bottom's not going to be that hard but the top's going to be really hard so you got to think about now, if you got a really thick band around your body and it's dragging you down, how could that pull you into a certain orientation and make you start to compensate? So I'm not trying to demonize bands. I just think they're overused, especially for populations where um, people are trying to increase performance because they're also not necessarily activating anything. People look at them as I'm activating my glutes or I'm, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And if your glutes weren't on, you wouldn't be able to run. You wouldn't be able to walk. You wouldn't be able to do anything. So it's not that you're activating any muscles. You might be, I don't know, for lack of a better term, you might be able to wake them up. But I still think that there are other considerations at play. Muscles don't just shut on and shut off. That's not at all how they work, actually. So I think taking into consideration the fact that nothing acts in isolation and trying to activate a muscle in isolation is going to probably not lead to the best possible outcome. But I do understand the thought process, and I do understand why people use them. I just think a deeper level of thinking can probably help us choose different activities. Um, and I think programs like the FIFA, what do they call that, the FIFA 15 or something like that? FIFA 11 um, plus. FIFA 11, that's what it is, yeah. That program, I think, does a really good job um, of a warm-up than some sort of, I don't know, um, band routine or just kind of like doing a bunch of different band exercises and calling that a good warm-up. 
you know, there was, it was a number of years ago when that first came out and I got wind of it. I was coaching a middle school girls team and I incorporated that warm up into uh, our program. Um, and I was amazed at how, how much that warm up helped dramatically decrease the number of injuries that we had with our players during the season. It was incredible. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I really do think that if someone just doesn't know what to do, doesn't know where to start, get that thing, have them do it. And then you're probably going to be on your way. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. We did it. We did it for a little while uh, verbatim the way that they had it. And then we went ahead and, and made a couple of variations to it based upon some recommendations that I had from some certified strength and conditioning coaches just to kind of varied up a little bit. And I, it really worked out wonderful. I was extremely pleased with it and I'm a firm believer of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Now, when we're dealing with our younger players and stuff, talk to us a little bit about folk, not focusing on low reps enough with these players. Yeah, I think uh, there's different stimulus you get from having a difference between a 12-rep set and a 5-rep set. So there's actually a good amount of data that suggests just, just generally speaking that a 5-rep set and a 12-rep set builds very similar muscle, but the strength stimulus getting stronger is actually geared more. It's You're actually going to see better improvements in the five rep sets. So I think a lot of people avoid high rep or low rep sets where there's inherently more weight on the bar because, I don't know, it, it's going to make them too bulky or there's too much injury risk. But if you're a good coach and you know how to program these things efficiently and effectively and at the right time and at the right dose, then I don't think there's anything to worry about. And in fact, I think it's too many athletes benefit at a reasonable age, maybe not with nine-year-olds, but once you get up into the teenage years, have them start to do lower rep sets, higher intensity sets, get them accustomed to loading their bodies, and that's going to provide them a neurological stimulus, meaning that their brain is going to adapt and that's going to send a signal to their muscles to coordinate their activity in a very specific way, which is very advantageous for teaching not only coordination, but strength under coordination. And I think that that's a really beneficial thing to start to think about because that doesn't necessarily happen as efficiently with a 12 rep set. I'm not saying do one rep maxes every week, but I'm saying maybe start to think about these five and three rep sets at a younger age than you might initially expect, because if you're responsible with it and you, all you need to do is read a textbook, not not read a textbook, but read some programming things on the internet. There's a lot of books out there that can suggest programming strategies to help do exactly that. So I would say there's, I think it kind of goes along with the idea of bands and how we don't want to necessarily load them too much because then there's risk, but loading the body and making it resilient to stress is how you help minimize injuries. That's some great advice there. Um, you know, I, I know this is an area where I lack tremendously and I wish that it was, it was better. Um, not training, uh, enough on the obliques. Talk to us about that. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. I think uh, everyone likes a nice six-pack, right? Washboard abs, that's great. But really, the obliques have such a tremendously more significant effect on performance than the six-pack abs do. The six-pack abs are important. You know, they help flex the trunk, meaning help ground your back. 
uh, and they have a very minor role in breathing. But in terms of the obliques, they're going to help control the orientation of your hips when you walk, run, rotate. They're going to help turn your trunk to one way and also the same side. So we have two types of obliques, our internal and external. Internal obliques, the deeper ones, help turn your trunk to the same side, while the external ones actually help rotate you to the opposite side. So if you want to rotate through your trunk, quote unquote, like people say, rather than your low back, you want your obliques to be working for sure. And think about how much rotation happens when you're running. You have a ton of rotation. So I think training rotation and training the obliques to work in rotation is very important. So you can do that through a variety of means. You can do that through um, single arm presses. We're going to check a lot of boxes right here. Think about getting a cable machine and setting it up and facing away from it, but having a attachment in one hand and then reaching one arm and pressing that arm and then feeling the rotation happening through your obliques and then and then just alternating your arm movement and i think that can be that can check so many boxes and uh, using that using those obliques as a means of rotation and also pelvic control and also through breathing which is what they do uh, we talk about breathing so much as if it's very important which it is but it's also it's also going to be much more than that because the breathing helps affects pelvic control and then that leads into rotation all these things are connected so if you train your obliques you're going to see a great amount of ability to control the body in space whereas the six-pack abs and doing hanging leg raises and things like crunches and sit-ups and uh, butterfly kicks and those are I, I get it I get why people like to do those but ultimately those are training the six-pack abs which have a much less but still important benefit for the body. It's just that the obliques often go under considered as one of these muscles and groups of muscles that um, actually make a huge influence on our ability to synchronize movement between our pelvis and our ribcage. As we wrap things up here, Connor, um, talk to us a little bit about uh, your podcast. I was happy to see you uh, start a podcast. I mean, you're a great follow online. If you want to lo- learn more uh, of the biomechanics and, 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 I mean, just a lot of great stuff and you go into such great detail, um, talk to us a little bit about the podcast and what you're offering there. Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of podcasts out there, um, I think you're an exception to this. I think you have a lot of really great guests on. You ask really good questions. A lot of them are kind of the same thing. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily go into the practical application. They discuss concepts a lot rather than like, how does how do we actually make an improvement and how do we actually go about things and uh, how do we actually make an impact, a practical, a practically applicable impact on what we're doing with the people that we work with. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my podcast. I want people to walk away from it and go, this is actually really helpful. And I just didn't hear about a theory. I learned about how to apply something. So I think that's kind of what I do. I get people on that you might not have ever heard of before because I think it's important to dig deeper into seeing what people are doing that are relatively progressive within our industry. And doing that, I think, helps progress the industry as a whole because I think there's a lot of good ideas yet they're also kind of recycled a little bit and i think in order for there to be progress there should be different viewpoints and that's kind of where i'm coming from with my podcast but at the same time it's important to also have a firm understanding of the basics because none of this is going to make sense and none of this is going to have value if we don't understand what works in the first place yeah i mean there's so much great information um you know i i, I love learning just like you said beyond the surface of of 
various things. Uh, my daughter, she's going to be taking uh, next semester biomechanics and uh, anatomy and physiology. So I'm kind of excited for her uh, to learn a lot of that stuff. And, and um, maybe her and I can have some pretty decent discussions about that kind of stuff. It's, it, I, I find it extremely fascinating, especially, you know, when you go on to a lot of the things talking about breathing patterns and, and I, I just find that extremely fascinating. Where can people find uh, you on social media and come follow you and learn? They can find me at Connor, T-O-N-O-R, like Connor McGregor, underscore, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, and then another underscore after that. So it's Connor underscore Harris underscore after that. And that's both Instagram and Twitter. And from there, I have a link to a variety of different pages. And then that's basically where all my information is. Wonderful, and you can find out more information about some of the some of the uh, courses that he offers. You can find out about the podcast. Uh, you can just check out all the the ton of free content that Connor puts out there. Uh, truly good stuff. We we follow him uh, with West Virginia Soccer Association, so we certainly encourage everyone to do the same. Connor, I certainly appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate you, man. It's good to be back on. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today. We really appreciate it. Now, remember, make sure you like, subscribe, and share our program here on the WVSA Digital Network. Thank you for listening to the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast. You can catch a brand new episode every Thursday morning here on the WVSA Digital Network. Or find us on our social media platforms at WVSoccer. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.